The Jeremy White Show. Our next guest is an inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, of course, founding member of Genesis. They're going to be coming to Montreal. Steve Hackett, Genesis Revisited, Foxtrot at 50, and Hackett Highlights. You see them performing live at Cell Wilfred Peltier, Plassey's Czar in Montreal on October 3rd. This is a show you're not going to want to miss because, first of all, it's the second show in the last like couple of months that Steve's coming to Montreal, which is pretty cool. Uh, welcome to the show, Mr. Steve Hackett. How you doing? Uh, very well, Jeremy. Nice to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm all right. You know what? You call me on a really hot day in Montreal. It's like 30 degrees, and I'm very happy to be in the studio right now. Put it oh, that way. Oh, lovely. It's it's really hot here in London, London, England, and uh, it's very it's very nice because they've been through dull weather here, but we were away touring in, in South America, so I'm back for a week, just finishing off an album here. Just It's all mixed, just kind of uh, getting into the mastering stage of it. Nice. Well, I mean, look, it's nice to come from South America and come back up to London and it's actually sunny. Who would have thought? <laughs> I know. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is that, that South America has, they have their winter at the moment. So it was only Brazil out of four countries. Everywhere else was cold. You know, we did, uh, we did Peru, Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. Brazil was the only one that was warm, which seems wow. like, it seems like a, a, a a regular summer for everyone else but you know right. that's that's their winter so you can imagine what their summer is like it's absolutely boiling yeah but, uh, everywhere else was pretty cold i didn't take enough clothes in fact it was uh, it was crazy it was actually quite cold and i wasn't yeah. expecting that that's pretty interesting is it difficulty performing in like that kind of like inclement weather like was were the venues outdoors uh no uh, uh, most of them were indoors but mm. in in brazil we we had uh, uh, an, an outdoor show but it was warm and it was nighttime and so uh, we had one outdoor in a place called niteroy which is on the other side of the bay from from rio de janeiro we did a show in rio one in niteroy and one in sao paulo so they're you know they're all kind of big cities yeah there. um that went very well very well indeed so you, so you must still enjoy touring at this point then because you, you'd be sitting at yeah, home yeah i do i do enjoy touring and and i'm always amazed you know how how much people like it do you know what i mean i mm -hmm. i stagger on stage and you know uh reeling from my last tour that's 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 the way it is with me you know and uh somehow the magic kicks in you know it's uh it's always it's always wonderful you know I think right. that's it. You arrive on stage tired from your last whatever it was. Then you bounce off stage from the amount of energy, the, the symbiotic relationship between the band and, and the audience and what the music does. So, you know, it, it feeds both sides. Everybody says that the best drug in the world is that audience interaction and that just like, ah, that comes at you. Yeah. That's right. You know, that enthusiasm, you can't buy it. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. So it was very good. We finished up in, in Argentina in a place called uh, Luna Park, which is an, actually an indoor um, boxing stadium, as it happens. And nice. um, that, that was actually fantastic. It was all sold out. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it's a whole different ballgame doing South America. It is, it is so different. Uh, talking about that, of course, I mean, you've played in Montreal many a times. I'm sure you have some great yes. concert memories over here from Genesis to the solo stuff. Talk a little bit Absolutely. about your, your relationship with Montreal. 
Well, you have to remember that when I was seven years old was the first time I, I visited when my folks were going to ostensibly move to Canada full time. And well, that didn't work out. But if I could have stayed, I would have done. You know, I I absolutely loved Canada. I mean, it was the wide open spaces. Yeah. For me, I'd grown up in the smoke. I'd grown up in London, um, uh, post-war London, which was pretty depressing, to be honest, in terms mm -hmm. of... Uh, fog and bomb damage and everything funny enough i've been writing a song about it um and um and then you know, canada was the wide open spaces not to mention traveling across the atlantic ocean so that was the big adventure of my my young life i absolutely you came over to it. canada by yes. on boat we came to canada on the boat this was 1957 oh. a very long time ago yeah. i was seven years old uh, and then we traveled across uh, Canada on Canadian Pacific, mm -hmm. like a silver bullet train, and and it had an observation dome, and it that was just mind blowing. The whole thing going through the Rockies, uh, the prairies. Oh, it was just just wonderful. Um, wow, I loved the whole thing. And then we arrived in Vancouver, but I, but you know, in later years, I tended to spend more time going to um to french canada and um quebec many many happy memories of um playing there montreal um toronto yeah um and and other places too uh, i always like to make it to vancouver if i can because then i get to visit the old homestead and uh, brings a tear to the eye we we could have stayed yeah as a kid i wanted to stay i loved it so much but well, Vancouver. i get to visit as a grown-up right well hey at least you still get to come and visit which is good that's right yeah yeah it's um, fun talk about this so you just said you're finishing up a record what so what's going on with that can we expect that to it's come a out new studio year, Rob. it's a new studio wow. album uh and um but uh but it but in 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 a couple of days time we've got the um uh, uh foxtrot at 50 a live version of foxtrot in its entirety mm -hmm. a genesis album from 1972 so it's yeah it was it was it was 50 uh when we did it if you know what i mean yeah and so that was last year you guys recorded it we see you see the thing is that that there's been a covid catch-up so everyone who's wanted to do something to coincide with the centenary we're all kind of wrong-footed so i'm still doing that live at the moment right. um so that's what I'll, I'll be doing when I come over to do the States. We, we, we come over to do uh, a North American tour. It'll be about two months long. Obviously, it takes in Canada. And uh, I'm looking forward to all of that. It starts around about the beginning of September. Mm -hmm. uh, the album will be out um, basically basically now. In fact, what, what is the date? We, we uh, No, sorry, sorry. It's, it's, it's later. Beginning. It's it's kind of just before october i haven't got the dates in front of me which I, is is very slovenly yeah. of me but i'll have to have a look at the wall where yeah. am i gonna well, be on montreal you're gonna be performing at cell wilford palatine at places are on october 3rd so we know that date october for sure 3rd. there we go there we are i've got that much okay <laughs> yeah. i got, got that, that one much. so you're gonna be yeah. doing foxtrot in its entirety to celebrate the 50th anniversary i guess it's still yeah. exciting to you to be performing those songs live I think it's a wonderful album, and I think that the two best Genesis albums of all time are Foxtrot and Selling England by the Pound. Now, Selling England, I took everywhere around the world, 
and Foxtrot I'm doing this time. Um, I've done Seconds Out. There's some com commonality between all of those um, because uh, Seconds Out was a compilation album, so I was able to do that in its, its entirety. Um, but that's a double album. This is, is, is shorter. Um, Foxtrot comes out at something like, you know, 50 minutes or so. So nice. I get time to do a solo set, which is, uh, which it, which is nice as well. So yeah. the first half I do so-called solo stuff and, uh, in the second half, the so-called Genesis stuff and, and a little bit more besides. Take me back to when you guys were in the studio getting prepped to record this record. I mean, like it's 1972, the band's all well rehearsed, firing on all cylinders. You're ready to cut yeah. this. Was there any sort of apprehension within the band to say like, you know, maybe this isn't what we should be doing. Maybe this is. I think that all great albums, everyone has this, you know, the, the fear meter is running over time when you're a young band you're just hoping that your album is going to sell sufficiently well that your record company is going to renew your contract the following year mm. um, i had no idea they were going to respond to it so positively it was tony stratton smith who was running charisma records at the time and he absolutely loved it and i thought he was going to turn around when he first heard the album and say i don't know what you guys were thinking you must be crazy forget it i'm tearing up your contract but it was completely different and it became very well loved you see i suggested to the band that we do a long form piece of music all linked together so supper's ready was a collection of songs yeah. that uh you know borrowed from a number basically you've got this whole kind of collage this montage this collection uh and i thought that it could work well live if we had the visuals to be able to put it across um so um that made a big difference and i think at that time peter gabriel was the lead singer and um he was just starting out as a theatrical performer as opposed to a mere lead singer and we had a light show for the first time i know that we possessed a mellotron a light show uh, yeah we had a lead singer who was um living the songs enacting them uh living them out playing the part so right. you had a certain aspect of of musical theater in some places we had dry ice uh and when there was a theater curtain nice get the strains of the mellotron the adagio beginning with you know a, a, a dry ice that, that would roll down into the crowd and envelop the crowd right at the beginning in time with the slow music and mm -hmm. Um, Peter doing a, a uh, appearing as a silhouette, but the only thing you could see were were, were the eyes and yeah. So it looked like the aliens had landed, and that I think um, that worked very well. Now the music is now very well known, of course, and mm -hmm. um, fans kind of know every note, um, right? Uh, and, and that's that's lovely. You know, I, I love it I, every time I hear. The strains of you know we use mellotron we use mellotron plus um and um the sound of that still sounds hugely orchestral but it, it just sounds like a big spaceship landing and right it's a big deal with the fans um i get emotional about it let alone the fans so there's usually a cheer from them when that starts up mm -hmm. um and it, it is a great buzz it, it's it's one of 
Genesis great moments. And what I love about Genesis, especially, I mean, like later on, I almost feel like the Mellotron being inter- like brought into the band was a precursor to everybody really embracing technology. I mean, you look at the Fairlight stuff that Peter and Phil would do later on in the 80s and like even on your solo stuff, like I, I always felt like technology was yep. embraced by the band, which was a, a good thing. Well, it was. Um, that was cutting edge at the time. Um, you've got to remember that the Mellotron was originally um, some kind of a device for... Uh, it's almost like the Enigma machine, you know. It, mm-hmm. it, it was used code for storing <laughs> code, code breaking. Yes, it's wartime <laughs> stuff. It was a storage medium, uh, and then of course it became adapted to uh, to music. The Mellotron, the Chamberlain, all of that, and of course, um, relentlessly analog and subject to all the conditions, atmospheric, the pressures. Uh, it didn't like to be moved. Um, mm-hmm. It could be a damn grumpy thing at times. So we use um, we use the guts of it, but, but we've we've got it uh, with more reliable technology now. Yeah, um, you got it as a plug-in. I mean, what more do you want? <laughs> well, there is that. But we, I've got I've got Mellotron strings before they go through the Mellotron. I did some work for oh. Mellotron at one point. Gave them some samples of my stuff so that I I'm on the new generation of. Um, of uh, uh you know mellotron tapes mm-hmm. um and um i said uh, you know I, I don't want you to pay me would you just give me uh, the tapes before they actually go through the heads of the mellotron so that they would all be eq'd mm. smoothly because the mellotron tends to favor some of the other some will be dull some will be bright you'll get mm. the e it's almost like it's alive the thing it like it picks and chooses well, it does, yes. Uh, and when it dates to sing, it can be very, very beautiful, or it can, it could just die a death. Anyone who works with uh, one of those Mark II double manual things that the Beatles had—that's what we had, you know. I think Dave Kurtzman's got ours now. I think he got the original one. So, uh, uh, and I used to love the sound of it. It was very, very beautiful, and it seemed uh, suddenly. I thought, you know, suddenly we sound like an orchestra. That was. That was the idea. Uh, we bought our second hand from from King Crimson. Right. That well, was it. Robert was getting rid of, I think they had three of them. So uh, I think damn. that was at least one too many. Now, would that have been recorded live off the floor with the band when you're cutting the record? Or would that be overdubbed later on? Well, we did tend to overdub because sometimes you would find that, yeah, if you, if you played along with it, it didn't quite give it the grand sweep. So... I remember us going to Air London Studios in Oxford Street, and um, we set up two high watt stacks either side of the room, uh, probably a forty feet long room, wow. and blasted it so that you would get, you know, a real dynamic. Um, you didn't quite get that when it was just the direct inject thing. Right. Uh, so and it's funny because there was no technology away. to do that. You had to literally put it in a 40 foot well, hallway and put some mics at the end to get that echo. You did, you did do that. Yeah, that, that, that's right. That you, People were using spaces much more in those days, whereas, you know, the art of, of you know, digital reverb and all the rest and multiband compression and everything that we're using downstairs in the house here, uh, that, you know, had yet to arrive. So, you physically had to move air and turn amps up very loud indeed if you wanted to feed back. It's like guitars. Uh, I've got 
several Fernandez guitars, and um, they've got on onboard feedback. That's that's what they do. I, there's no tyranny of volume there. You can hold a conversation over the top of my guitar. Yeah, absolutely screaming blue murder. Uh, but we're not dependent on um, you doing what Jimi Hendrix would need to do, which would be, had he lived, I'm sure he would have had um, hearing problems. Mm -hmm. What do you think of Jimi Hendrix? Were you a fan? Great, absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I think um, you know, the spirit of anarchic electric guitar was embodied in him. Um, he moved wonderfully. You felt that he was the guitar. He he seemed to absolutely live it, didn't he? Every every note. Um, I don't think you can replace that. He's he's a one-off. They've been great guitarists since. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, there's Jimi Hendrix and there's Andres Segovia, and it's a very different approach. And uh, these very separate schools. I think um, what I grew up listening to, if you know what I mean. So right. you know, I, I pay homage to both. Um, every now and again, if I'm jamming with someone live, and this was started by the late great John Wetton, he said to me, "Oh, you know, would you come and jam with us?" I said, well, I said well, "What do you like us to do?" And he said, "Why don't we do all along the Watchtower?" And whatever guitarist he was working with at the time, say, so "I did okay. We, we can trade solos." So I've kept up that tradition. Nice, um, and I was doing it. Funny enough, in Brazil with with a pal of mine, who's a guy called Richie, who's very famous out there, and he's got a great band. But anyway, he joined us on on stage, and um, uh, we were swapping guitar solos. It's a guy called Leo Fernandez, who's mm. a fantastic Argentine yeah uh, player who's sort of check jazz him out. Rock yeah, Leo Fernandez, very 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 interesting. Mm. I, I love the story talking about just great guitarists of the seventies. I mean, yes. we're, we're big fans of Eddie Van Halen on this show. Yes. And so um, man, like Edward, unfortunately passed away, you know, not too long. It's going to be like two years at this point. Like it's pretty wild. Um, a, yeah. Coming up in the seventies. I mean, like, was there any competition between Edward and you at any point? Oh, I, I, I don't think we actually contacted each other. I've got a feeling that he came along to a gig of mine at one point in the i'm trying to i must have been late 70s mm. um now um i never met him but my pal brian may met him and recorded with him mm -hmm. um what links us is is the tapping technique which i was doing from 1971 onwards you can hear it on, on the genesis albums on nursery crime right straight off um and so how did you develop that technique did it just say like do you have the same yeah. Do you well, still have? Do you have the same story that Edward would say? Like, oh, I just wanted an extension of my left hand, so I went like this. Like, <laughs> well, I think I think that that's it. You know, you that you could do jumps that are are impossible, and it allows you to hammer on and hammer off, um, and be the fastest gun in the West. Um, it's the, it's the fastest technique mm -hmm. for playing electric guitar. Um, it's just it's an extraordinary thing, and. Um, I, I I rethought this whole idea of oh is it tasteless to play fast and I think that it's nice to have that gear and to be able to do it. In fact, I've got a book about Eddie called Tone Chaser, and I think with Steve Rosen, that, great guy. Yeah, that's right. You when you've got that that um, 
that continuous stream of notes, that sort of note cluster effect, uh, then you've got, you have got a continuous tone that arcs through it. Um, so it's not so much about one note, is it? It's about, it's about the travel through, through all of that, and you get this extraordinary thing that 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 goes on, and um, it really is hard to get away from it. You know, when you're doing a solo, and if you're doing anything improvised, you think to yourself, "Oh hell, here we go!" Bam, 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 bam. You know, it's just right. the wall of knives. Um, it's so fast you can't catch it. It's 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 that. You see, I remember watching guitarists in the 1960s where they would open up and amps were not mic'd up in those days so what you get would be the ambience of the club because everyone was playing clubs in those days everyone whether it was peter green eric clapton jimmy hendrix um jeff beck savoy brown blues band and people would get into this thing where they'd start playing fast and the and the drummer would maybe get the ride and it would be very exciting i used to think well no one needs to play faster than that it's just a wall of treble a wall of knives, I used to call it. And, right, because um, it just pierces and, your ears, that top end. Well, that's right. And, and the thing is, of course, now you've got things mic'd up through PAs. You can actually hear much more clearly. But in the 1960s, you've got this absolute blur, which felt like being on a roller coaster where you couldn't help but smile. Oh, here it comes. Ah, you know, that, that <laughs> feeling of pure excitement. So that's... That's something you used to get in small gigs, nothing mic'd up, but wow, what's going on there? It's it's cooking. Yeah, I remember I asked Justin Hayward from the Moody Blues, I was like, all those amps that you guys had on stage, like, were those on? And he's like, no, you don't understand. Everything was on and how loud it was could knock your face off. I'm sure, yes, I'm sure. Yeah, well, that's, that's how amps were. Uh, 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 I remember this at the Marquee playing at London's Marquee when it was in Wardour Street and um, I was using a stack and people would say to me you were deafening tonight or couldn't hear a note you were playing because it was all coming off the stage and those speakers were very directional so mm. yeah you were right really if it was quiet. over here you were playing really deafening you know um, <laughs> now of course I, I play I play a lot quieter sorry to disappoint people I play more quietly but what comes through the PA is in the hands of whoever's mixing sound out front so i suspect it's not i suspect it's not quiet right how, how different is your guitar rig these days compared to you know when you recorded foxtrot for example very different because i recorded foxtrot with a little tiny fender champ amp it was a little tiny thing and uh, it wasn't being driven very hard and i played it through a fuzz box or two so um it's a very buzzy little little sound uh whereas i'm now using well live i'm using an angle i used to use I've, I've been through a whole bunch here i i used high watt at one point with genesis i used um oh an h and h and i was using another one let me see roland i was using uh, roland jazz chorus amps mm. uh, which my friend steve rothery still uses to this day um but um, then I went through a period of using Marshalls, um, uh -huh. and in, in in South America I was using Marshalls. Funny enough, but uh, uh -huh. my touring amp, when I got my regular stuff, is is um, it's an angle, and that's an interesting amp. 
Yeah, Angle's a good good brand. I, there's a lot of guys that use that. A lot of more like heavy players use the Angles. Yes, I think so. Yeah, well, I think my playing's become more heavy metal over time. Um, I do apologize if I seem to have lost any subtlety, but um, <laughs> uh, it's just um, <laughs> the older you get, the more you're trying to catch up with your misspent youth, I think. There you go. Hey, nothing wrong with that. Uh, I mean, looking at guitar gear, just for example, I mean, like the amount of how it's progressed over the years. I mean, like in the seventies, it was that very dry, direct sound. And then Edward came yeah. along and he had the phase 90 on there. And then in the eighties, it was just saturated beyond belief. Like, yeah, I used the phase 92 and, uh, uh, mine got lost over, over time. So I, I got one in recent years and, um, of course it had, it had, uh, Eddie's colors all over it. So, uh, nice. Oh, the phase something we were, I tell you when we were using lots of phase 90 and phase hundred, it was 1974 when Genesis and I were, were doing uh, Lamb Night Down on Broadway. We put it on keyboards, we had it on guitars, we, I had it on Voyager the Acolyte. I was, I was, I was in love with it, but it was really the, the precursor to chorus. Mm -hmm. And then of course everyone went crazy on chorus. And so you got those 80s really thin guitar solos from people with masses of chorus and uh, and then everyone wondered why and <laughs> went back to hey maybe chorus knocks the guts out of everything it should yeah. be used in moderation yeah a lot of those like pop radio guys like you know dan huff and steve lukather uh, michael landau like that that thin that that jangly clean guitar sound it was, yes. it was everywhere well jangly is nice um, to make it sound a little bit like a 12 string um, yeah I'm a big uh, fan of that sound, that, so I'm I'm not talking shit. <laughs> exactly. When you're picking, when you're arpeggiating, that's um, that's a very nice, a very nice sound. And um, but when I'm doing lead stuff, apart from when I'm doing it's one solo, I think I use it. if I'm playing every day that track, I use chorus on it because that was how it was recorded. And I uh, when I recorded that on Spectral Mornings every day. Um, I did two takes and had them played simultaneously mm. as I did funnily enough with first and fifth, where there were at one point on the return of melody, it's three guitars all playing the same thing, which sounds a little bit like chorus funnily enough, because yes. they're slightly out of tune with each other. Uh, but you know, it's got a certain, it's got a certain feel about it. Did you do a lot of that stuff when you were recording back in the day, like a lot of layering to create a thicker sound? Um, I did. Yes. I think, um, you know, I think electric guitar is, is probably a single line instrument most of the time, unless you're playing, if you're playing distorted chords, then you're tending to do power chords and just use fifths, really. Um, so as a single line instrument, you would have to, if you wanted to get harmonies, you really needed to um, track things up. So I was in the 70s, I was doing two and three part harmony uh, very early on. Um, again, you can hear it on that very first tracks 1971 uh, musical box you can hear you can hear that at the end i did a three-part harmony at the end i've mm -hmm. got a feeling that the low part got lost in the mix but it was a three-part harmony i know brian may said to me how much he liked that he said that influenced him i thought he, he is mr harmony guitar isn't he you know that's it yeah of course these days we've got intelligent harmonizers that will enable you to play in a major or a minor mode in just about all keys so um that's a very uh a very wonderful 
device. I haven't really got any tunes at the moment that really support it, but I sometimes use it with improv. Right. If I'm doing a bluesy thing, and suddenly you get a three-part harmony, or if I use octaves with it, I can make it um, um, many more than that right. coming at you. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like a lot of guitarists, you can either be the Ramones and ACDC or you can be Genesis and Queen or, you know, look at what Tom Schultz did in Boston with the layering and harmonizing. Beautiful. And- I, I like that very much. I like uh, uh, Boston. I thought it was very interesting, you know, and and, and how well produced that sounded. Yeah. Um, I remember our road, road crew saying, oh, you know, that's a really good guitar sound. And I... I realized that there was an upper octave playing along, um, which I don't think was, was being generated. It was actually being played, but it, oh, it gave sure. it an extra extra harmonic on on a more than a feeling. So you get that. And it's it's a it's a big beautiful sound. Yeah. And he, like even like the Ebo stuff that Tom would do and like there was just so many things. And then Mont Lang took it to a whole different level with Def Leppard later on. <laughs> yes, well, I started using Ebo uh, in 76. Um, that's when they were first, you know, given to me. And um, and then I was hoping that there would be an onboard version to enable the guitar to sustain. So many, many years later, Fernandez brought out the sustainer. Um, and I've, I've got several of those. Um, a couple of them belonged to the late, great Gary Moore. Uh, but the one I've been using recently, I bring that one on the road for a spare. It, it always was because we were sharing the same guitar tech at one point, and then oh, wow. um, they, the family, sold it to me um, after he passed. And what a great player he was! Um, and you've got the progeny of this stuff because he was given uh, Gary Moore was given Pete Green's Les Paul. He, he literally gave it to him didn't he you know when mm-hmm. pete green was going through cranial problems shall we say but i remember seeing seeing pete green playing wonderfully with that particular guitar on on, on many shows even way before fleetwood mac when he was working with with uh, with john mail and mm. so you get this thing about you know guitars passing hands with players um I hope it doesn't seem too much like uh, I don't know. I hope it doesn't seem gauche, but I'm I, I'm very proud that I've I've got some of those guitars. Yeah, I just saw Greeny on stage with Kirk Hammett and Metallica like two weeks ago. Like that guitar's really? still going. Mm-hmm. Really? Oh yeah. wow! See that? See that's that's very interesting. I, what I find interesting about Metallica is that they worked with orchestra as well. Yeah. So you know the idea of that. Um, I wanted genesis to do that um but there was always a resistance so i've done it myself mm-hmm. many times and uh managed to do it with them um, uh in different countries sometimes live sometimes on record Royal philharmonic uh, sometimes with the genesis revisited things that i've done but i love that combination of of group and orchestra now my only problem is i have to do another interview straight away and um, yeah we're gonna we're running out of time so i run run out of time but it's been great talking yeah absolutely steve hackett genesis revisited foxtrot at 50 and hackett highlights check them out october 3rd silver for peltier in montreal at plastic
Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. I speak soon, Jeremy. All the best, mate. Bye-bye. Yeah, we'll do this again, and we'll talk more guitar next time. We will. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. An all-new episode of The Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews and episodes on demand now. Subscribe so you don't miss any of it. 